0: Listen to these words from 1 Timothy chapter 1 as an assurance of pardon for those of you here this evening and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes to Timothy, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. We're going to read the Bible together just now before we come to sing again. We're going to read from James chapter 3. And although it says on the screen we're going to read from verse 13, we're actually going to read from verse 1. It's on page 1214 in the Bible in the pew. James chapter 3. We're going to read... The whole chapter beginning at verse 1 and as we read we remember this is the word of God and so we can trust it completely not many of you should presume to be teachers my brothers because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly we all stumble in many ways if anyone is never at fault in what he says he is a perfect man able to keep his whole body in check The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. Full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. of righteousness. Amen. We thank God for his word to us.
1: We want to think this evening about wisdom. We want to sketch this evening the picture of a wise and godly man or woman. And we want to start with that question in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Who is wise among you? What does a wise minister look like? What does a wise elder look like? What does a wise committee member look like? A wise parent? A wise child? A wise employee? A wise boss? The list could go on and on. What does wisdom really look like? James, who wrote this letter, was the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, and one of the great leaders in the early church. We read about him in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. He doesn't waste a word in this pastoral letter. He's writing to the churches of Jesus Christ, his half-brother and his Lord. Chapter 1, verse 1, scattered among all the nations of the ancient world, living amongst great evil. And he writes to them as a pastor that they might be faithful and continue in the way of Jesus Christ and so live wise, godly, and good lives. And in order that that might happen, he doesn't hold back. He says things in this little letter that are really strong. You feel after reading James that you've been punched So strong is his language, so strong is his counsel and his warning. And the reason in this section from chapter 3 verse 1 until the end of chapter 4 when he's talking about wisdom, the reason why his counsel is so strong, the reason why James is so concerned that you would listen, the reason why he wants you to go to heaven and not to hell, the reason why this is so important is that we live in a world that is mad with folly. That's the testimony of all of Scripture. The world is not neutral. It's not that there are some people out in the world and they're the really bad ones, but really the world's not too bad. The Bible tells us that the world is dark, darkened in its understanding, separated from the life of God, And that God in the gospel has called us to a new world and a new way and a new wisdom and to have new minds. So this really matters this evening. There aren't three categories of people in the world. There aren't three categories of people in James's letter. There are only two types of people. You are one of them this evening. This is really simple. You're either wise or you're a fool. That's it. Those are your choices. And I think when the choice is so stark, we need to listen really carefully to Pastor James. We need to listen to him because he knew Jesus. He lived alongside his own brother. And he came to acknowledge that his own flesh and blood was Lord and Savior and light of the world. And James, who wrote this letter, gave his life as a martyr, for his brother's gospel. I want us to focus this evening on verses 17 and 18. There's so much in James, and any sermon on James has to have a careful uh, restraint on it to make sure it doesn't go on too long, because James doesn't waste any space. And we're going to focus our thoughts on verses 17 and and 18. And we're going to compare the picture of the godly man or woman in verses 17 and 18 with the picture of the fool that James gives us throughout his lecture, his letter. So first of all, how can you identify a wise person? How can you identify a person who has received this wisdom that comes from heaven? Well, first of all, They have received wisdom that comes from heaven. James is really clear in his letter. There is absolutely no hope of wisdom if you confine yourself to this earthly realm. If you decide in advance in your life that you're going to live your life, not maybe just with your own guidance and your own wisdom, but the wisdom of other creatures and people throughout history, but you're going to cut off God from the conversation, there is no possibility whatsoever, James says, that you will ever find wisdom. You are locking yourself into folly from which you can never escape. In the 17th century, in the Western world, with the emergence of philosophers like Descartes, and the movement that we know as the Enlightenment, the intellectual world of the West took a decision to cut itself off from the wisdom of God. Man would be the measure of things, and man's wisdom, all the wisdom we would accept. And what we see today in our society, with its monstrous and stupid legislation, and the terrifying direction of travel in which our society is going, is we see the fruit of of a culture that for generations has decided that God gets no say about wisdom, that man is the measure of things. And if man is the measure of things, we are bound up in folly. Look at how James describes earthly wisdom, verse 15. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly Unspiritual of the devil. The wisdom of the world, James says, verse 14, is marked by hearts that harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition. There are two driving principles that explain quite a lot that's going on all around us, doesn't it? The internet that perfect vehicle for bitter envy and selfish ambition. James says, if you want to be wise, if you want to be on the path to life, you need to accept that true wisdom is from heaven. He says these famous words in the first chapter of his letter. Verse 17 Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And then verse 21, therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. You see, the reason that wisdom is from heaven is that wisdom is from God. And the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaims to us that there is one true and living God. He eternally exists as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God is not only infinitely powerful, he is not only infinitely loving and kind, he is infinitely wise In the perfection of his own nature, he knows all things. He directs all things. He controls all things. And into this world of rebellion and folly, James says, God has given wisdom. God has given wisdom. And it is like a seed that is planted in the heart. It is God's word, and it does God's work, and it changes people, and it changes families and it changes nations. Think what James must have seen as his brother opened his mouth and his brother spoke and people said of his brother Jesus of Nazareth that no man has ever spoken like this. No man has ever had authority like this. James heard Jesus say to people, follow me. And what did they do? They followed him. Because God's word, when it takes its place in the human heart, transforms the human life and draws us to God and draws us to his son that we might know him and we might love him. Without the word of God, there is only folly. Without the word of God, we are without hope and we perish in ignorance and we live in darkness. But with the word of God, there is hope. Because with God's word, there is God's power, there is God's truth, there is God's purpose, and God's word has God's authority. So brothers and sisters, I trust that as you look out on our society with all its needs, you look out on our nation in all its troubles, I hope you don't despair. I hope you don't despair. I hope you don't think somehow that God's time is up, God's ways are going to be frustrated. What we need to do now, as in every generation, is to put our hope and trust in the reading and the preaching of the word of God. Because when God's word is preached, people and the world are changed. God's light scatters darkness. God's truth banishes falsehood, and God's wisdom ends folly. Brothers and sisters, that is the story, isn't it, Of the Protestant Reformation. What's the great slogan of the Protestant Reformation? We have it up on our faculty corridor at Union. Post tenebras looks, which in English, if your Latin is rusty, after darkness, light. After darkness, light. And in every generation, God's people are called to trust that God gives heavenly wisdom as his word is read and taught and his people proclaim it. That's why James can say of this gift that it is part of the every good and perfect gift that comes from our Father of the heavenly lights. So if you're tempted to despair in the face of of everything that's happening around us, as the world gets smaller and the world's problems closer, listen to James. There is wisdom that comes from heaven. And it is heavenly wisdom that focuses on Jesus Christ. James doesn't mention Jesus much in this letter. And it's confused many people when they've read it. He describes Jesus very often in the letter, and he describes Jesus in these verses tonight. But his references to the Lord are quite limited. Perhaps the most dramatic reference to Jesus in this letter is in chapter 2, verse 1, when James says, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Or you might read that, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. You see, what really matters about the Christian message more than anything is that when we speak of Jesus Christ, we are speaking of one who has come from the Father's side, who has been with the Father from all eternity, and that in Mary's womb, he took our flesh so that he might bear our sins, And triumph over darkness. The one we look to and we proclaim in the gospel, the wisdom that has come from heaven, is the Lord of glory. It is the Son of God. It is the one who made himself nothing so that he might deliver us from our sin. It is the great gift of the Father of the heavenly lights. It is the greatest of all possible gifts. It's the gift of God himself. And so no matter how serious the troubles of the world look and how depressing the future may appear, God has already acted finally in his son to reverse the fall, to redeem a people for himself, to deliver us from evil and from the devil. And the wise person, The wise person puts God's word first in their life. They know God's word. They read God's word. They attend a Christian fellowship where God's word is read and preached. And they live their lives under the authority of God. That is the first and most important thing about the picture of wisdom. The second is this, James says, the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. So he's talking here about how this heavenly wisdom works itself out in our lives. Now I work in an educational establishment and we do our work beside a very large educational establishment. People are studying all the time? Maybe. There are certainly lots of books. There are lots of lectures. There are lots of seminars. There are lots of people with fancy learned titles. But none of that guarantees wisdom. Information is not the same As wisdom. Knowing lots of things is not the same as wisdom. You cannot have wisdom without purity. You cannot know the Lord if you don't walk with Him. Some of you have the great privilege here this evening of never having lived a day on earth when there were no smartphones. 2007 was the appearance of the first iPhone, but long before that there were, some of you remember them, the Nokia phones? You remember how cool they were? Some of you had them, you could get repetitive strain injury carrying them around. You remember those? You were really cool. And they're well-named smartphones, aren't they? But don't be confused particularly some of you at the front. They're not called smartphones because if you have one, it means you're smart. It means the people who designed them were smart. That's why they're smartphones. They're clever. Human beings are very, very clever. We're clever enough to make phones that we can carry around and talk to people on the other side of the world. and We can take organs out of one body and make them work in another body. We can build great big buildings. We can investigate the tiniest parts of human anatomy. We are filled up with information. But none of that guarantees wisdom. Because wisdom is first of all pure. Wisdom is first of all pure. One of my ministry students, one of our ministry students said to me relatively recently, why do we spend so much time just sitting around drinking coffee? To which my initial flippant reply was, because I'm so tired. And if I don't sit and drink coffee with you, I'll just give up. But the real answer is slightly different. When we set people aside to train them for ministry and we pay them, a little bit of money to help them get through their studies, and we ask them to do three years of study at college before they're even allowed to be an assistant. We're not simply concerned that they would have knowledge. Knowledge is really useful in a minister, so we don't want to knock it. But we want to make sure they're wise. And wisdom isn't just a mark on an exam. It's not just feedback on an assignment. It's getting to know people. And knowing, are you seeking to live your life for the Lord? Do you seek to honor him and obey him and live for him? Are you resisting evil that's all around you and walking in the truth? Are you saying no to sin and yes to righteousness? How are you coping with the pressures and strains of being a minister? How do you cope it? 11 o'clock on a Monday morning when one of the staff presses you at coffee time on something you're studying. Because if you can't cope at 11 o'clock at college, you'll never cope at 8.30 at a session meeting. Wisdom requires purity. The second half of this section in chapter 4, James talks at length about this purity He says, verse 8 of chapter 4, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. There's a great temptation in the Christian life to think that purity is something that's going to happen to us. You know, like being in a car accident when somebody hits you. You didn't see it coming, but it's just happened, and someday you're just going to wake up, and you're going to be obedient and pure and walking with the Lord, but that's not what James says here in these verses. He says, wash your hands. He says, purify your own heart. He says, grieve, mourn, and wail. He says, mourn for your sins. He says, humble yourself before the Lord. Without purity, without seeking to walk with the Lord, without turning our backs on evil, we will not be wise. And you don't need me to tell you that evil is all around. The earthly, James says, is unspiritual, it's demonic. And those who have heavenly wisdom are seeking to walk with God. And just as there's no point being a minister in training, if you're putting godly thoughts in your head, but embracing sin with your life. And just for that matter, there's no point being a teacher in a theological college if you say clever things with your mouth, but embrace sin in your heart. So for every single one of the Lord's disciples, wisdom and purity go together. You may have read this week that Tony Blair's great ambition that 50% of young people would go to university has now come true. But a degree doesn't make you wise. Walking with Jesus Christ and submitting to his word is what makes you wise. And some of the greatest fools have the most letters after their names. So the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. And then James, a number of phrases, he rolls them together in the rest of this verse to describe the basic characteristic of someone who is wise, who is filled with heavenly wisdom, and who is seeking to be pure. Now, we're not going to look at all these in detail because we haven't got time, but the combined impression of these is really important. The peace that James talks about here, the peace that he describes in verse 17 as being peace-loving, or the peace he describes again in verse 18 where he describes believers as peacemakers, that's not what Paul is thinking about when Paul talks about the peace with God that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the ending of hostility between God and sinner. James is talking about something else. He's talking about the ancient Jewish idea of peace with God, of shalom, of wholeness, of the life that was being ripped apart by sin and deceit, being put back together by God himself, where individual people in body and soul are reintegrated by their creator as he puts them back together And how many people are there today in our society who need to be put back together in true peace because they've allowed folly and sin to tear them apart? It's the peace that comes to families and communities and churches and whole nations when the peace or shalom of God is present. And it is this peace which is the great promise of the kingdom that God is going to restore creation to what it was designed to be, and in God's heavenly kingdom, his people will enjoy perfect, everlasting peace. In themselves, with all their brothers and sisters, can you imagine it? Not a single Christian will ever annoy you again. And ultimately with God himself, perfect peace. And what James says here at the end of this chapter is that the wise person who is on the road to that peace, the wise person who has received heavenly wisdom and who longs for that shalom, who lives for that day when the mess of this age is over forever, that the person who is truly wise will as much as it is in their power spread that peace today because it is that peace that they long for forever. That's what James is talking about as he pours these phrases one on the other. The ESV, I think, has this better if you have an ESV open in front of you. It's describing the the characteristics of someone who longs for this peace. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, sincere. You don't see much of that when you turn on the TV at the minute, do you? I know there are Christian members of Parliament doing their best but it doesn't dominate the life of our culture, does it? The person who is full of heavenly wisdom demonstrates what James is describing here as true meekness. He says in verse 13 that this wisdom is the the meekness of wisdom. Now, this description of the person who is living meekly before God, who is a peacemaker before God, is not a description of weakness. There's a great temptation in the church when you hear the word meek. The word association you play is doormat. That must be the word association, right? If you're meek, you're just a bit pathetic. But the Bible tells us that Moses was the meekest man on the earth. and I don't think you want to describe Moses as a doormat. And the Bible tells us that our Lord Jesus Christ was a man of perfect meekness. And there was nothing unmanly or pathetic about him. No, meekness here in James is the wisdom of the life that is lived under the word of God. Accepting the providence of God. Walking in God's paths, God's way. Knowing that God knows best. True heavenly meekness is the willingness of God's children to submit every part of their life to the Lord, whatever comes, whatever happens, because God is God, and we are creatures. It is the recognition that we live in a world that is full of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, a world which is earthly, unspiritual, and, and demonic. A world where there is disorder, verse 16, every vile practice. And in that world, God's children are to be meek and gentle peacemakers. That does not make us doormats, it does not mean we don't say strong things. It doesn't mean we don't argue when that is appropriate. It does mean that we are to be characterized by gentleness an openness to reason, mercy, a busyness to act in the Lord's service, impartiality and sincerity in everything we do. This is the sketch of a godly man or woman that James expects to see lived out in the lives of God's people all over the ancient world, all down through the generations, and here tonight amongst us. As we close, a final word of encouragement. It is really tempting in the days in which we live to despair. It's one of the ancient sins that the church has spoken about through all generations. The technical term for it is acedia. It's the despair that believers are tempted to when they are faced with the evil and darkness of the world all around them, and by their own sin and their own temptation. And it is really easy to give in to that sort of despair. And James doesn't sugarcoat the problem. He doesn't pretend the world is better than it is. The world is awful, James says. But the word is at work. The sower has come and sowed his seed. There's nothing the evil one can do to prevent that seed from doing its work in the world, in all places, in all generations. This heavenly wisdom transforms people so that they desire to go the way of God and not the way of the devil. The way of heaven, not the way of hell. The way of light, not the way of darkness. The way of purity, not the way of sin. This word from heaven changes people. It has changed many of us as we've heard the scriptures testify about our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory who gave his life to free us from sin's guilt and power? And we've heard his voice say, Follow me. And we followed him. And we've rejoiced to know him and serve him. And we've seen our own lives transformed from the kind of bitterness and argumentativeness that we see in people all around us. We've seen God begin to work in us and make us more reasonable more gentle, more merciful, more open to reason. And what you need to hear tonight from God's word is that if we commit ourselves to God's vision for humanity and to God's ways of working in the world, if we sow in peace, verse 18, there will be a harvest of righteousness. There will be a harvest of righteousness. The kingdom will come. God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As Psalm 67 prays, so it will be. The earth will come to know the Lord. All the nations will come to praise him. And a great multitude that no one can number will gather before the throne of God in heaven and praise him forever. And so we must not despair. We must commit ourselves afresh to the wisdom that comes from heaven. We must be people that are marked by the word of God and by the word of God as our supreme and ultimate standard for the church. We must pray that we will turn away from all evil and seek the paths of peace. And we must cheerfully give our lives to suing peace in this brutal and violent and frightening world. We must have faith that God's ways are true. And what we see with our eyes is ultimately weak and impotent compared to the one in whom we believe in our hearts by faith because we have received glory from heaven in the heavenly wisdom about our Lord Jesus Christ and we know what he can do when he plants his word in our hearts. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, it is because you are the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change that you have given us a true and gracious word. It is because you are kind and full of mercy that you gave your one and only Son to redeem us from this fallen world and from our sins. Heavenly Father, we pray tonight, plant your word deep, in our hearts, that that word from heaven might produce the life of heaven here on earth. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.